it is to come each week and have our hearts and minds reoriented around the cross of Christ. Each week we come after a long week of burdens, falling into our own sins, being trapped by temptations and things all around, or battling, and then thinking, or is it all for naught? And, but each week we come and we hear the gospel again. And we hear those songs again, and we get to sing and have our hearts re shaped and reoriented. I, I hope that you're just as blessed by this worship team as I am. We're just so blessed to have this kind of worship. Let's pray as we approach God's word together. Father, we thank you for this time that we can come and hear your word. I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds now to receive, to live for your glory, to be filled with your truth, to reflect you to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Since it's Mother's Day, and my sermon has absolutely nothing to do with mothers, <laughs> I can at least start off with something that I know my mother has said and, and she believes and deals with. So she worries so much that when she's gone, her four sons will never get together anymore. Won't spend any time together with their families. We won't take care of each other. And we won't have any unity. It's a big concern for her. It's a big concern for a lot of moms, I think. Probably some dads, too. In some ways, I was thinking about this. And this concern reveals a mother's godlikeness. Let me explain. Guess what? God cares about that kind of unity, too. And not only about biological families, I think he cares about those, but far more we see in Scripture that he cares about the church family, the family in Christ, and he wants all of those who are in Christ, in the family of Christ, to have unity in him, deep unity, where they care for each other, they want to see each other, they want to be caring for one another's families. In fact, Jesus... In what we often call his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, prays for just that kind of unity. He says, let them be one. He's talking about believers as disciples as you, Father, and I are one. That's amazing. That's his prayer. On Wednesday nights, we're going through a series on what is the church. In this past week, we looked at the attributes of the church and the marks of a true church. How do we know that that's a church, a true church? Historically, one of the four attributes of the church, something found even in the Nicene Creed, is this concept of unity, oneness. We recite with all Christian churches around the world the Nicene Creed. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. That's what the Christian church has confessed for centuries. Let me ask you a question. Do we really believe in one church? That is that Christ has one church all around the world? It sure seems that division is far more common a description of churches than unity. It's exciting that we have two churches that came together to become one here at TMBC. Really exciting. Something that a lot of people say it's unheard of. 
two churches that are uniting rather than dividing. But, you know, I was thinking about this. Both of our churches in our pasts have had and experienced division first. The sad thing is that this isn't just in terms of denominations, by the way, and large groups, and only for theological reasons that there is division in Christ's church. We often don't see unity even in local churches. It's common to speak of cliques in churches or factions. Paul dealt with this in Corinth very early on when some said, well, we're followers of Paul, and some said, no, we follow Cephas, and others, of course, the most arrogant of all, said, no, no, we follow Christ, as though no one else did. Unity is a big deal. Big deal. It always has been. And here's what Paul wants us to see as we're continuing in our series through the book of Ephesians. It's a big deal because it is connected to the very work that the gospel accomplishes. The gospel brings peace. Remember, we, we talked about it both vertically between God and man, but also horizontally between members who, of the body of Christ. And so unity matters. This morning, we're going to turn from Paul laying out powerful and important doctrines to Paul turning from theology to what we call ethics. How then shall we live? If all this other stuff that we've been talking about is true, if the gospel is that good now, how do we live in response to that gospel? He wants us to see what people that have been changed by the grace of God should look like in community. Please open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Ephesians 4, starting at verse 1. You can open your Bibles and keep them open, if you would, so we can walk through this together. Ephesians 4. Starting right at the top, verse 1, Paul writes, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Amen? May God bless the reading of his word. Paul turns from explaining the glories of the gospel to urging Christians to live as those who have received and understood that glorious gospel. Look at verse 1 and see how he begins. You can turn on the back of your bulletin and follow along the outline there. And here you could fill in the first point is this, a calling worthy to walk in. A calling worthy to walk in. The therefore, right up front in verse 1, if you notice that there, is always a reminder. Let me say this. The Christian life always comes after the therefore. I want you to think about that. In other words, it is always a response of gratitude 
to what God has already done into what God is doing. The Christian life comes after the therefore because what comes before is God and what he's done and his provision and what he continues to do in you. Therefore. He repeats the language of call twice. Notice that in verse 1. The calling to which you have been called. He's reminding the Ephesian Christians of everything he has just laid out for them. That's what the therefore signifies, but it's also what the word calling signifies. If you go back to Ephesians 1.18, Paul was praying that the people he's writing to would know the hope to which he has called you. Beloved, we are called out of the world and we are called to the Lord and Christ does all the work to get us from calling to himself. Amen? In fact, the emphasis is on what God has given to you. The good news. Everything Paul has laid out about the gospel and its work is part of the calling, the calling to himself of broken sinners who were so far off, separated from God, dead in sins, but now alive with a glorious future. Those who were divided now brought near, now together, Jews, Gentiles, made into one new man, the people of God. It took the work of Christ, his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, and even his ascension to achieve this one reality seen in the church to make us one. And this church, bought by the blood of Jesus, Paul said, reveals to the world and even the spiritual realm the manifold wisdom of God. Only God could do this. And this emphasis on Paul, on, on God pouring out grace upon us, that Paul's been describing from the very beginning of his letter, praying twice that we would grasp the grandeur of this calling. Now Paul says, because of this calling, walk worthy of the gospel. Walk worthy. He says he's laid out the gift, and now he lays out the responsibility. He says, if all of these things are true, if all that I've been telling you is true, and you believe these things, then here's how you ought to live in response. He says, look, this is yours already. Now walk in it. I don't know if you remember the language of walk, but it's earlier in Ephesians that we already saw this. Chapter 2, verse 1. Paul had explained our past. He said, look, before Christ had done his work in you, you were walking according to the course of this world. You were living a certain way. You were conducting yourself a certain way. You were selfish. You were under the spell, so to speak, of the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air. You were doing things like the rest of the world. Seeking to please yourselves rather than God, but then in chapter 2, verse 10, there's a change. Instead of walking according to the world, we're told that God himself has prepared good works. We're saved by grace through faith, and he's prepared good works for us to walk in. And now Paul's saying here in chapter 4, verse 1, walk in them. Walk in the good works God has prepared by virtue of the gospel for you. 
Notice something else here in verse 1. Paul sets up his appeal by pointing out yet again that he is a prisoner for the Lord. Why remind us that he's a prisoner again? Beloved, he's in prison because he's convinced that the gospel call is worth everything. Even the sacrifice of being locked up and potentially on death row, Paul thinks is worth it. He's saying, you need to see the worth of that gospel in order to live for that gospel. He's trying to get them to see just how precious and worthy this calling is. He is modeling this conviction. He's modeling faith. He's willing, beloved, to be in prison and face execution for this calling. We Christians should be willing to live out the glorious work God has worked in us. This is a calling worthy to walk in. And beloved, if you don't believe that, if you don't see that the gospel is worthy, then the Christian life becomes all about works and performance. It becomes a burden impossible to carry. To want to walk worthily of the gospel, which is what Paul's urging us here, you have to see the calling as worthy. And the gift is precious. That leads us to verses 2 and 3, the content of the exhortation from Paul. Do you see what's going on in verses 2 and 3? You can put this in your notes, the second point, the way of walking together. How are we supposed to walk together if the gospel is what God says it is. I want you to see Paul is pushing for unity here. Do you see it? What we see here is a series of four ways to walk together because the gospel, as Paul laid out, brought peace both vertically and horizontally. Here's how we walk worthy of the calling. We walk together. Isn't that interesting? Beloved, we are so used to the rugged individualism of the American way We're so used to our privacy and what we do being only that which matters, me, 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 that we miss what Paul is saying here because what he is saying is that community and unity in the body is the way of the gospel. Remember when God created Adam and he had not yet created Eve? Those were peaceful days. No, that's not What did the Lord say? They weren't peaceful days. He said, it is not good for the man to be alone. It is not good. Humans are social creatures intentionally because God himself is relational. And we're in his image. And so brokenness in relationships is part of the fall, not part of God's initial design. The family was designed and meant to stick together. The gospel is doing that work of reversal in us, and it starts in the church. The first imperative to come out of the indicatives of the gospel at work in us is relational. It's for the church and our interaction with each other. This makes sense. The immediate impact of the fall was broken relationships. The gospel restores relationships. So Jesus explains, what does he say when he's speaking to his disciples? They will know you are Christians by your love for one another, for other disciples. 
Jesus explains to his disciples before he leaves them. He says, imitate him. Imitate me in washing each other's feet. Instead of trying to break each other's legs. I think that's what he was trying to say. It's the way of Christ, which is the way of God. Love for others. Unity, togetherness in him. The gospel reverses the fall. It takes enmity and brings peace. So what does this walk entail? If that's true, notice what Paul says. First, walk with humility and gentleness. Beloved, if we get this point down, everything else will fall into place. We can just quit the sermon now. Humility and gentleness. That's what the gospel produces and calls for. So we have to look at our own hearts right now and ask ourselves this question. How's my pride? Am I someone who thinks more highly of myself than I ought? And beloved, to properly answer this question, we can't keep the analysis superficial. Maybe you say to yourself, well, I don't mistreat people. So you think that all is well. But let me ask you a question. Do you treat people at all? That's an important question. I can say, listen, I have never been mean to so-and-so, but have I been nice? Have I shown kindness? We're going to come back to this. Sometimes pride shows up in our apathy rather than in our meanness. Paul says this, here's what it looks like to walk worthy of your calling. Walk with humility and gentleness. The word translated there, humility, is a word that means lowliness. We have to know our place before the living God, but also we are not to put ourselves above others. You know what's interesting? In the Greco-Roman world in which Paul was writing, that quality of lowliness, that term that was used by Paul here, was not valued at all. In fact, they hated it. They didn't think that it was a virtue to think of yourself as low. I think today people believe it's even worse. The world doesn't want us to set aside our own desires. Today, the world says that our desires are all that matter. And if anyone is trying to stop us from getting to our desires, they need to be crushed. Humility? Well, that's crazy. Paul certainly knew it was a despised attribute, by the way. So he says, Christians, guess what? We're different than the world. We humble ourselves to exalt God and others knowing that it is in that kind of humble service that we reveal the greatness that God has worked in us. Jesus says, how, do we, how are you great in the kingdom? Become a slave of all. Humility. Humility and the next word, gentleness, go together. When you are not arrogant or proud, you don't have to be brash in how you treat others. You can be gentle because you're not proving anything. You're simply living to serve and, and bless others. Why? Because in Christ, O oh Christian, you are already blessed, already strong, already filled. You already have everything, so now you're free, free to serve, free to love others, free to put others and esteem them more highly than yourselves. Jesus doesn't call us to do that before he already has done it for us. God has already shown you just how much he values you, and now he releases you to value others. Pride, beloved, is a community killer. 
It's all about me, me, me. Instead, Paul says humility and gentleness are the way of the Christian, which means, beloved, we should see more humility and gentleness in churches than anywhere else. But I'm not so sure. Humility and gentleness, the way of Christ, who emptied himself, took on flesh, became like a slave to save his people. How are we treating the very people Jesus died for? Second, Paul adds to humility and gentleness, he says, walk with patience. Do you see that there? If pride's a community killer, patience is a community builder and healer. Proverbs say, a soft answer turns away wrath. The word Paul uses, in fact, means long-suffering. I like when it's translated that way, because I think it gets to the heart of what the word is trying to say. I really liked how another author put it. He said this, Patience is that long-suffering which makes allowance for others' shortcomings and endures wrong rather than flying into a rage or desiring vengeance. Ask yourself, which one do I sound more like? It's the opposite of anger. We're willing to suffer long for the sake of the body for whom Christ suffered deeply. Here's a quick test for you. When uh, you are wronged by a brother or a sister, how badly do you want to see that person who wronged you get what's coming to them? Are you the one... Maybe I shouldn't admit this, like me. Who, when you're driving and someone cuts you off, all you can think of is, I hope I see you crash into the wall. (laughs) And then you start repenting because of how awful that thought is. How about when a brother or sister intentionally or unintentionally hurt you? They don't invite you to an event. They don't reach out when you're hurting. They say something unkind to someone else about you. What's your heart desire in those moments? Does it reflect the gospel's grace and patience? I often tell people that we as fallen human beings are much more likely to seek justice for others and mercy for ourselves. When we mess up, the excuses are many and they're all valid. They're really good excuses. When someone else messes up, the excuses are lame. There couldn't possibly be an excuse for your actions. To walk worthy of the calling, we must walk with patience. But that's why Paul leads right into another, a third important element here that's very closely related. He says, thirdly, bear with one another in love. Let me tell you what this verse and many other verses in the scriptures tell me about the church. Here's what this verse tells me. It tells me that in the church, there are going to be a lot of people who hurt and annoy each other. Okay? You can count on it. It's going to be there. Anywhere you put more than one person. Sometimes I annoy myself, so it's possible even by yourself. But when you put more than one person, you're going to get people that hurt and annoy each other. Paul knew it. And so here's what he says. Bear with one another in love. That, that word bear with can be translated put up with. Put up with. That's your brother. Put up with him. That's your sister. Put up with him. How often have parents spoken such terms? It implies that we've been annoyed, we've been wronged, but we endure it. 
We put up with it without getting angry, without seeking vengeance, and note, not begrudgingly, but in love. Why? Because Christ loved us. And remember, we're rooted and established in his love. Beloved, we are different. Each of us. We do things differently. Not only in in some cases are we here ethnically different, age-wise we're different, generation-wise, but individually we are our own people with our own backgrounds, with our own knowledge, with our own ways of doing things. You guys do things a lot differently than I do, even though my way is right. So there are moments where we're going to bother each other. You're not going to like what I do, and I'm not going to like what you do. But I have the pulpit. No, that's not how it works. (laughs) Look, what's the opposite of bearing with each other in love? A short fuse. Getting angry. Not putting up with people we disagree with. Not putting up with people's shortcomings. Quickly reacting. Seeking vengeance. Wanting them to feel what they made me feel. Talking about each other. Gossiping. Complaining. Quickly, quote, being done with each other. Ooh, as a pastor, that's my least favorite phrase. When I've had people come up to me and say to me, oh, Jason, I'm done with him. I'm done with her. I can't help but think to myself, what if Jesus said that about me? And he easily could have. But for the grace of God, how often not bearing with one another is simply another sign of that pride that we must kill to have godly community and unity. There's one more thing Paul says here. He says humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and finally, maybe more proactively, look what he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. You know what that word eager means? Exactly what you're thinking. What are you eager for? Something you just can't wait to get to. You are passionate for it. You hasten after it. You are zealous for it. I am eager for the Lakers to get another championship. Eager. Let's see. We'll see. You're concerned with it. You want it badly. Well, here, beloved... Here's what Paul is saying. Is unity in the church of great concern for us? If if we understand what it means that we have become members of one another in the body of Christ in this local church, we understand what it means to be members of a body that has been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. Unity and pursuing that oneness would be high on our list. It should be. The Christian, for the sake of the calling of the gospel, which brought peace, must be eager to pursue unity with other believers, and it starts in the local body of believers. It must be our priority. Notice this. We don't create the unity, right? It doesn't say be eager to make unity or create unity. That's already done in the Spirit. The unity is already ours because once we are in union with Christ, we are also in union with everybody else who's in Christ. But Paul says be eager to maintain it. And what he means by that word maintain, most scholars believe, is that he wants the the unity to be made visible. Are we eager to maintain it? This means that if there is a rift 
in the body for any reason whatsoever, we are quick to pursue reconciliation. If there's hurt with humility and gentleness, we address it with patience. This means that we're looking around at others that God has brought into this local church and body, and we say, okay, who can I build relationship with now? Who is in need? How can we deepen the connectedness of this body? And in this church, it's even more important because we've brought two different local churches together to be one. And we have to go out of our way. We don't just leave it to others. We should be the initiators because we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word Paul uses, this is interesting, translated bond here, the bond of peace, is related to the same root word that Paul uses in verse 1 when he talks about himself as a prisoner. I think it's intentional. He's a prisoner for the Lord. In other words, that's a word that has to do with chained. He's chained for the gospel. In some ways, the gospel chains us to each other in a bond of peace. And it's good. And so since we're stuck together, we better find ways to like it, pursue it. And I want you to know, beloved, that the power of the presence of God within the body of believers, or that witness of the presence of God in the body of believers, is often so diluted by our indifference toward one another. Paul doesn't want us to be indifferent toward each other, not in the least. That's why we get to verses 4 through 6. Why we walk together, Paul wants to lay it out. He's going to use a a version of the word one seven times here. Seven times. Some people think, oh, seven must be the, the number of perfection. Maybe. I don't know. But seven times he's going to repeat himself. One, one, one to help us see we are one and we should pursue it. He starts this way, one body, one spirit, one hope of our calling. We are connected to each other, beloved, in many deep, deep ways. We are members of the very same body, tied together by the same spirit, looking forward to the same future. The body analogy is extremely helpful because we can all relate to it. If our bodies aren't responsive to our brains, there's a problem. If each body part decided to do its own thing, that's not a healthy body. But that's how we seem sometimes as a church. We're one body. Christ is our head. We're to follow his commands. But we act as though we'd rather be in someone else's body. In another body. Nothing to do with those who are in the one we're called to. And our oneness in the body comes from the work of the same Spirit who dwells in each of us and ties us together. There aren't many different spirits that fill different people. One and the same Holy Spirit of God indwells every single Christian. So what does it say if I remain angry at one in whom the Spirit dwells? And there's only one future, by the way, in the presence of God. Christians are hoping for with absolute certainty, we will be together forever. It's a long time. Get used to each other. We start now. He continues, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
Jesus is the only Lord, the only way, the only truth, the only life. There is only one faith, so there's only one set of beliefs that constitute Christianity. First and foremost, Paul has the gospel in mind. What makes us one is that we hold to the same truth about the living God. We're united in our doctrine. We have trusted the good news of what Christ has accomplished. Why would we reject others who believe the same thing? And there is only one path into the Christian church. That is baptism into Christ, symbolized by water baptism. That's why we don't make someone, by the way, who has been baptized in a, another Christian church be rebaptized every time they decide to go to another local church. No, there's one baptism in Christ. Because we are one church in Christ wherever it is found all over the world. He goes on, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Don't miss this. We could go in depth in each one of these one, one, ones, but notice this. God is our Father, and He is over all, reigning over all things. And that God who reigns over all has made you one. He has called you to these people in this church with these believers surrounding you. Obey Him. Follow Him. Everything we have as Christians is shared by all other Christians because we share the same triune God and all his benefits. So we must live as one. So consider it worship to love your brothers and sisters here at TMBC deeply. Consider it gratitude to the Lord to go after each other to build relationships. And please start today after the service. Consider it a way of honoring the Lord to get beyond the awkwardness that so often keeps us separated. Consider it your spirit-empowered opportunity to share deep communion with people who have nothing in common with you but Jesus. Consider it part of our evangelism to the world to show the world that we love one another here because we've been loved by Christ. Get beyond the obstacles that are so superficial and man-made. Let us humble ourselves. We are not too good to get involved in each other's lives. And we're not too bad or incompetent either. We are spirit-filled Christians. Let those who have not tasted of the goodness of Christ be drawn to Christ through the way we love one another here. Because God is worthy. Amen? He has made us who we are. Now we need to live like it. Let's pray. Lord, so much to think about in terms of our unity. As we look at this text and we see how important it is to pursue unity in the body. I pray that you would work in my heart and in the hearts of all of those who are gathered here, that we may be those who have humility and gentleness, patience, a willingness to put up with one another. And yes, above all, may we be eager <clears throat> to maintain this unity that you bought for us on the cross. Lord, we pray that we would reflect the gospel work in the way we love each other, 
that those who come and see will know there's something different here. And his name is Jesus. Amen.